Do you have proper asset protection systems in place in case you ever get sued? Did you know the United States accounts for 99% of the world's lawsuits? Brian Bradley is discussing with Joe everything you need to know to better prepare your business and lifestyle in the event of a doomsday situation. LLCs are just a base layer of protection. Find out more information, including setting up a bridge trust. Let's just get right down to business. Joe Robert Show. This, this is the Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Joe, for having me on and, you know, having this podcast put together. And you know, it's going to be an important topic. It's going to be a fun topic. I'm not anybody's legal guru, but uh, I think the concepts that we're going to definitely be talking about today are going to be beneficial for your audience. And I'm going to blow up a lot of the status quo and misconceptions that everybody's being told about. Well, I hope so, because we always hear all different types of advice across the Internet and so many different opinions out there. What is it to your background that, you know, can tell our listeners your experience. Yeah. So, um, I am an, you know, for your listeners, an asset protection attorney and I, you know, a big part of my, my client portfolio are real estate investors. And we focus more on the higher end, high net worth, ultra high net worth clients. Um, I was originally in a trial lawyer, top 100 high stake litigators that kind of directed me into asset protection because I got tired of seeing so many people building their retirement and their wealth, losing it all just from like one stupid predatory lawsuit. And they didn't do any preventative planning beforehand. And so, you know, I was selected to America's best attorneys, 2020 super lawyer, rising star was like 2021 and 2015 lawyers of distinction. Um, so I have a lot of great accolades because I really like what I do. And I also, beyond just being a trial lawyer, I also like investing myself. And so it kind of directed me into this great niche field of asset protection and helping people clear up these false sense of security that they have. And I think a lot of that comes from just people accumulating, 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 looking at you know the next matrix, the next deal to close. And I'm a good person. I'm not going to be a bad landlord. I'm just going to ride lady luck. And unfortunately, lady luck's not a plan. And that lady luck doesn't work in court when you do get sued because it's generally the things you don't plan for that wipe you out. Or they have insurance and they think that their insurance is going to cover them. And that's just not how insurance works. It's great for little things, but it's not good for the big matters. Or they have their assets held how you would hold them 30, 40 years ago when the legal system wasn't all crazy and out of control in their family estate plan. And those just aren't set up to where they're actually going to protect you. Those come into effect after you die and they're not going to protect you from creditors trying to take your assets from you now. Or they think for some reason that LLCs are a one-stop fix, all like silver bullet that's going to kill, you know, like Dracula. Um, And they they miss the first, you know, first (laughs) word, first letter limited. Like they tell you straight up in there, like, hey, this is limited liability protection here. You know, there's no vampire slayer with this. And so what we do are just, you know, try to protect you from a sue happy nirvana, you know, more than there's like more than 40 million lawsuits filed every year in the U S. And I think like they're saying 99% of all the lawsuits of the world are filed in the U S. And so it's just become a multi-billion dollar industry. And so what we do is just provide peace of mind for clients and our, we're trying to level the playing field and the, keep in mind the overall goal really is just lifestyle preservation. Um, you know, like, and really more of how collectible you are. Like, I can't stop you from being sued. Nobody can. Um, But when done right, the one thing that you have is control over how collectible you are. 
And so we now have over, I think it's like 3000 clients in our network and we're protecting over 5 billion worth of assets now. And like I said, like, we just like to get ahead of the game. Well, why don't you you know, I got, there has to be some story out there of somebody that got really got sued and kind of got wrecked. And maybe, you know, you could give us, you know, one of those stories and the reason why they would want to choose some of those, you know, asset protection LLCs or trusts that we're going to go into. Yeah. A lot of them, like it's just three that I've been dealing with over the last couple of months is a self-made business owner owns some restaurants out in California and got into a uh, class action lawsuit for wage claims. And, you know, like this is now like turning like, oh, maybe it's going to be like a hundred thousand dollar lawsuit turned into being like over a five million dollar lawsuit. And, you know, he had like a, you know, multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, but you know, nothing protecting everything in his own name and the money's going to have to come from somewhere. And he came to me after the fact and it's like, sorry, you're a little late to the game and you're too far down the rabbit hole on this. Like we have to exempt that lawsuit because the planning has to be done before the lawsuits. And then even then there's look back periods. And so the sooner you get stuff done, it ages like wine, it gets stronger, 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 and stronger. Um, Or we have one out in Jersey, you know, New Jersey, where there's a landlord renting out his, you know, unit and they happen to be renting out to a gang member and they were having a party. Someone pulled out a gun, shot somebody killed who got sued in a civil lawsuit, wrongful death for negligence, the owner of the property, you know, for, for negligent security and safety. And so now he's dealing with this massive negligent, you know, wrongful death lawsuit for, you know, good guy. He had no idea who's being, you know, the property is being rented or that someone's going to pull out a gun and shoot somebody. Where's the insurance? They came out and said, well, Hey, sorry, we're not covering that. That was an intentional act. Someone pulled out a gun and shot somebody. We're not covering you for that. (laughs) You know, it's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. (laughs) Mold issues. You know, you get a big bad case of a mold issue and a family member gets sick. I mean, you know, like there, I had to deal with a multi like $40 million lawsuit when I was living out in Michigan over like mold. So basically anybody obviously out there and especially in the U S can get sued and pretty much over anything, whether it's right or wrong or they win or not, they can file for a suit. Correct. That's how our whole legal system is set up. Unlike most of the other world, you know, like it's, we'd rather give anybody an opportunity to come in and be heard. And then our system is not a loser pay system. So even if it's a fraudulent or predatory lawsuit, you still have to ante up, pay the lawyers, astronomical legal fees, defend yourself. Then they're going to force a settlement out of you. And that is called a predatory lawsuit. So the sooner you get asset protection systems set up, and it can be anywhere from you're just starting out greenhorn, new to investing, not much liability, LLC insurance. Then as you grow, just realize whatever you set up, that's the base foundational level. If you're starting out, it has to grow with you as your assets and your visibility and liability grow. And that goes into like management companies and then like the creme de la creme, very strong asset protection trust. So starting with the basics, you know, for asset protection, you said LLC and insurance. Yeah. Uh, typically, you know, where do you recommend the LLC and what type of insurance? That's a, that's a great question. So like the insurance, I'll just say, get as much as you can afford. And that makes you feel comfortable. Just realize the shortcomings of it. And like, they're great for slip and falls and little things. Insurance is a business. They make money by taking your premiums and not paying out on big matters. So you need to realize there's a whole thing called insurance defense law and exists to find wiggle room to not pay you on large matters. And they do that through what we call, you know, like frivolous, um, you know, like wrongful intentional acts, wrongful doings. They don't cover you for that. And that can be as simple as saying you, a judge deciding you wrote an email saying the 
plumbing was done and then something happened in the property. They're going to use that email and the judge is going to say that was an intentional act because sending an email is an intent to send an email. Now they're going to say the entire lawsuit and case has some element of an intentional wrongdoing. We don't cover you for an intentional wrongdoing. If you think we're wrong, sue us. And then you're going to have to sue your insurance provider and fight them while you're being sued by somebody else. And that's how they make these wiggle rooms not to pay you. But you still have to have insurance, you know, like especially, you know, for the little things. And when you're starting out, just realize the shortcomings of it and know your, you know, your max claim number and read the fine print. LLCs are great. They're just foundational pieces. This is where you start. You know, like I said, like I don't, I'm sure everyone's heard about LLC. So I don't want to like break down unless you want me to like what an LLC actually is. But I want to break down this jurisdictional issue of where people are going and chasing like charging orders. And the issue here is that people here of all these different states, like where do I go to Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, and is generally what they're doing is trying to chase a charging order, which is just saying the maximum amount that I can get from a member who owns this LLC is this specific charging, you know, the, the award against the charging order, not your personal assets. The problem is, is that if you're, I'm going to harp on California a lot. And the only reason I'm going to harp on California is because the massive amount of people live in California and they're generally investing in other states because it's very expensive in California to buy real estate. So let's say you're a California resident and you buy a property in Tennessee. And then you're hearing, go to Wyoming to create a Wyoming LLC and put all of your real estate into a Wyoming or Delaware LLC. This makes no sense because you don't live in Wyoming. The assets not owned in Wyoming. The charging order protection or what you're trying to get from that are protections that we get from business disputes. You know, like Joe and I owning a business together and then us breaking up the business and suing each other. That's an internal business dispute. You can take those internal Wyoming statutes and they'll help us out in our lawsuit. Real estate is completely different. And so when you're putting real estate into LLCs, it's not a business, it's a holding company. You're not operating out of it. And so there's no internal liability dispute. You're getting sued from a damage or an injury that occurred on that property. That's tort law, that's damage laws. You know, like those are laws that are gonna be used wherever that asset's at. So if it's Tennessee, you're going to be getting sued through Tennessee state laws. You're not going to take Wyoming state laws with you. A judge will just laugh at your lawyer and throw that out. And so there's no purpose unless you have a nexus and a connection to Wyoming or Delaware, one of these other states, to put your real estate into one of those. You're just going to be paying double maintenance tax. Then you have to go and get a personal agent of service their sole job is to say, hey, guess what, Joe? You just got sued. Here's your service. I did my job. Go get a lawyer and defend yourself. Then the whole idea of anonymity, these anonymity, you know, Wyoming LLCs, isn't what people think. They think that they can just create this anonymous Wyoming LLC and just disappear and ghost a lawsuit and you're never going to be found. That's not how anonymity works. You know, like anonymity works by someone not being able to type in and say, okay, what's the personal address of Joe? So I don't get angry with him and egg his house. It gives you personal privacy. That doesn't mean you can't, you don't have to show up to court and defend yourself and your, and your, and your assets. What, what happens once you show up into court is the judge is going to say, all right, guys, you just got sued for X amount of money. Here's an asset disclosure list. I have to make sure we know what every piece of asset that you have to cover that claim. So at that point, you have two options, and this is called legal discovery. You disclose what you own or you lie under oath 
and under perjury and say you own nothing. And then you commit perjury and then go to jail. And so you're going to end up having to disclose the assets that you have anyway. So rule of thumb is if it, it doesn't make sense to just get cute with the systems, you just put the real estate in the state where the assets at. And then from there, those LLCs are owned by management companies and then asset protection trust as you grow. Okay. Now, you know, so when you own real estate in a certain state, you, you want to open an LLC in that state where the real estate is located, right? Yeah. Now on the other side, for those that are, you know, internet gurus or, you know, have e-com stores or anything, digital products, you know, what is the recommendation there? Um, on that, you can, if you're just doing like a business venture, then you can start getting into different jurisdictional picks for your operating. Like if you and I were in like a digital business together, like I would be like, okay, it could make sense then to go to Wyoming or Delaware or Nevada and create a business structure there. But then realize if you don't live in those states, you're also going to be paying like the taxes of the state that you're going to be in. And that's going to be like a whole nother, you know, breakdown of a topic. But if it's just a straight business, then yeah, then you can start looking into the different jurisdictions because you're looking at control over your operation, you know, and your operating manual and all of that. Those states are good because they basically look at your operation manual and say, whatever you agreed upon, we're not going to have our state statutes trump that. And so that's where like the real strength of jurisdiction shopping from creating a business venture come into with that is internal disputes and then going towards what the operating manuals and agreements say. Now, what is your take on uh, a single member LLC versus a multi-member LLC? Is there a difference from an asset protection? Standpoint? A little bit. Like I'm, I'm not a bit like I use LLCs, but at a very base foundation level because they're easy to be pierced. And especially in real estate, because if you're putting a piece of real estate into an LLC, the number one argument out of that is like, well, that's just an extension of yourself. It's a holding company. That's not a business. It's not operating anything Pierce, you know? And then the other part of it is it has to be registered in the state that you actually reside in. So if you're investing in another state, so like, we'll just keep California or California resident with the Tennessee property and a Tennessee LLC, it has to be registered as doing business as in California and pay the franchise tax. Once you do that, you basically have converted your whatever out-of-state LLC to a California LLC because you availed yourself of those state rights and you have to pay the taxes there. So I don't want people to be like, oh, you know, LLCs, I have an LLC. It's great. It's limited. Single member, multi-member. Multi-member is stronger than a single member simply because courts, especially in the coast, East Coast, West Coast, are really um, piercing and tanking the single member LLC. They're basically worthless now. And so it makes a little bit more sense. Like if you're married, especially if you're married, have your spouse in as a multi-member LLC. Um, but it really, the best way to do it is have those LLCs owned by a management company and preferably a limited partnership. And then your, you and your spouse would be the multi-member managing members of that limited partnership. That limited partnership would own the LLC. Interesting. And what does that do from a asset protection standpoint? Well, it creates a second layer of protection. Like you think about like a castle with a moat, you're just building more moats around. But what it does is then it adds the ability and flexibility because think about asset protection. Like if you're from somewhere where there's a lot of cold weather, like I grew up in the mountains and snow. I also lived in Michigan. It's freezing cold. You dress in layers, you know, you have a thin layer, a mid layer, and then an out, outer shell, you know, layer that, and it allows you to be more flexible. You can take layers off as you get hot or cold. Um, you want your asset protection plan to do the same thing. You want it to be able to be flexible and move with you. And so you put your real estate in these LLCs. These LLCs should eventually be owned by that management company. What that limited partnership does is allows all the K-1s of all the LLCs you collect 
to passively flow into that one management company. So it's just one tax filing. Not let's say you have 15 LLCs and you're filing 15 different K-1s. That's a financial mess. Like your CPA will love you because they're billing you <laughs> for that. <laughs> Sorry, CPAs out there. You know? But um, for you personally, that's a lot of out-of-pocket out of expense that you have to manage. So what it does is it cleans that up. The management company owns all those LLCs. You just have one extra page declaring the assets, which are the LLCs that it owns on there. And then the real benefit of a limited partnership is because they have dual classes of ownership, you know, the GP and then the, and the LP portion of it. The general partner owns all the assets. You're just a managing member of it. What owns that limited partnership should eventually be an asset protection trust or a very strong bridge trust. And then you're just a beneficiary and creator of that trust. And so it allows more flexibility to have the three layers of protection that you really want as you, you know, if your goal is to become wealthy, you know, which I think everyone investing in real estate's goal is, eventually you'll need the three layers and you'll end up needing that asset protection trust. So when it comes to the limited partnership, is there any area from a registration standpoint that you... Like a specific state that I like for that? Yeah, correct. Or how does yeah, someone I, make I that decision? Yeah, I specifically like Arizona for the limited partnership. And it's just because they're the only state that actually codified the ability to separate the limited partnership from the trust. And they actually have it as a specific code. And it's just called, it allows you to detach that limited partnership from an asset protection trust and the assets that are in it. And surprisingly, Arizona is the only state that statutorily allows you to do that. And I'm surprised that Delaware, Wyoming, and Nevada haven't followed suit on that yet. No one ever mentions Arizona that much. <laughs> no, I mean, so you, have a, you have a lot of different states. Like that's a good, there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know? And so it just depends on what you're using and real estate's different. But the reason specifically you use the limited partnership in Arizona is because of ARS section 29-333. It just allows you to disconnect that limited partnership from an asset protection trust. And it's the only state that allows you to statutorily do that. Interesting. All right. So typically after the basic LLC set up, you know, at what net worth do you kind of advise to start throwing in the limited partnership? Yeah. So I would say somewhere between like 250,000 to 500,000 net. And that, cause that comes around about four to six properties. Now, if you're in a bunch of different states, it could be three or four, because if you're investing in three or four different states, now you have three or four different LLCs, you're going to probably want that limited partnership to save money on four different tax filings. So it really just comes down to where you own and how much you own. And then, but I would say like 250 to 500,000 is when I see people having multiple assets in different states. So it's around that net, that net worth. And then the next stage up for the asset protection trust, especially our bridge trust is about 1 million net of unprotected assets. And that's just because it takes most people a long time to build that. And one lawsuit will completely wipe out your, their entire retirement. And so you see the need for the value ratio of that to come in to say like, Hey, we're going to protect over 1 million. Now it's worth spending, you know, like 29,000 to protect your entire nest egg that one lawsuit you're not going to be retiring from. All right. Well, let's get into the trust then, because obviously, you know, that's another thing thrown all around the internet and there's different kinds in the U S and outside of the U S. So maybe yeah. give us the basic breakdown of, you know, the different types. Absolutely. And I'm going to break it down through the eyes of jurisdiction. Okay. Yep. And so like, if we go back to like our bad weather analogy, 
you know, like you're in the frozen tundra in Siberia, you know, like for you, this is your third layer and picking the proper jurisdiction is the, really the big guns. And what jurisdiction means and why it's so important is that the laws and the rules that govern you and trust and business entities are going to be different from one jurisdiction to another. And this means from one country to another, you know, U.S. versus, you know, the Cook Islands or Cayman Islands, one state to another and even one one county from another. And so think about like a dead body falling like on county lines and, you know, the sheriffs showing up from different areas fighting over who's, you know, on scene and who gets the, you know, control of the case. Same kind of thing with this. You have two options. You can either establish a trust domestically here in the U.S. or you can set them up offshore in another country like the Cook Islands. And for a little historical context, the offshore trust came first in 1984 when the famous Cook Islands created Asset Protection Trust. I personally personally prefer the power of going offshore if and when it's needed. And it's just because it's the strongest home court advantage that you're going to actually have. And the power comes from this really fancy word called statutory non-recognition. It's just the global gold standard over the last 40 years. And what this means is that your U.S. judgment is completely worthless in the Cook Islands. You'd have to start your case all over from scratch, facing the highest legal standard of the world, which is the murder standard beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, The plaintiffs have to front all the court costs, fly in a judge from New Zealand. And what you don't get here in the U.S., if you lose, you know, you pay. And so when you're trying to face all of these hurdles, most likely you're going to lose. And then the statute of limitations is only one year. But, you know, like there's always a caveat, like there's a negative to everything. If you're going to be purely foreign, like, I mean, obviously effective, like five out of five stars, but the hurdle here is the cost. Like generally you're talking about like $50,000 to create a fully foreign asset protection trust. And then you're going to have tons of IRS forum disclosures and asset disclosures that you're going to have to do. And honestly, for most people, it's just a hard pill to swallow and it's overkill. So then people start coming to what do we have domestically domestic hurdles you know they came about 10 years later um the cook islands we actually brought people over from the cook islands to help create domestic asset protection trust of all places alaska was the first state to create them and then obviously wyoming nevada and you know about 20 other states domestically started creating some sort of asset protection trust But the problem here is that they fail on effectiveness. And that's because we have the U.S. Constitution and the full faith and credit clause. You just can't run from lawsuits. And then we have this fake, you know, if you're a California resident, we have this case, Kilker versus Steelman, 2012, that says, well, hey, guess what? You're a resident of California, not Nevada. So we're not going to recognize this out-of-state, other-state asset protection trust. So too bad, Pierce. That case was upheld by the Court of Appeals. So depending on where you are, there's a really fine line on what you can use and what you can't. And so I prefer combining the best of both worlds, like have an offshore component in your pocket if and when you need it, but have the trust classified domestically. So it's cheaper to maintain and cheaper to start up. And that's called a bridge trust. It's kind of like a hybrid and it's just combining the best of both worlds. It's a fully registered foreign Cook Island trust. Um, It's registered offshore from day one, from the day that you created it, but you bridge it back. And that's why it's called a bridge trust. You just create the foreign Cook Island trust, bridge it back so that the IRS classifies the trust as a domestic trust under USC section 7701. And now you have an easier entry point for a foreign trust classified domestically. And then if your doomsday scenario ever did come your way, you just drop the IRS compliance, fully registered foreign Cook Island asset protection trust with the strength of statutory non-recognition in your back pocket levels, the playing field generally 
Cases will just run away if it's a doomsday case or you settle it for pennies on the dollar. The case goes away and settles. You reinstate domestic compliance with the IRS. You're back to being a fully domestic trust. Now, being fully domestic trust, uh, does that minimize the offshore filings, the costs, or what are those Absolutely. You know, benefits? That's exactly, that's exactly the benefit of being classified domestically is you don't have to deal with those extra IRS disclosures. Um, the maintenance cost is going to be lower. Like for a fully foreign asset protection trust, it's generally like five to $10,000 a year to maintain. For it to be a hybrid and classified domestically, generally around $2,000. Um, the costs, like I said, of starting a purely foreign trust, generally around forty, fifty thousand dollars done right. A hybrid, about thirty thousand, and so you don't have those extra IRS disclosures. The cost of maintenance costs are more efficient and effective. And when you're using these type of trusts, generally you have you know over one million net assets, higher visibility. This is when it starts making sense to have this type of trust. Now. Is there any other trust provisions within this trust that help with the asset protection in the U.S.? Like I heard of spendthrift provision yeah. before. Can you kind all, of? Yeah, all asset protection trusts are 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 called self-settled spendthrift trusts, which just means they're created by you for you as your own beneficiary with these built-in protections, like creditor protections. All asset protection trusts are. What comes down into the discussion is: is it a purely foreign? Is it a purely domestic trust, an irrevocable trust or not? And then at that point, you want them to be irrevocable because if they're not irrevocable and you're getting sued and it's purely domestic, what can happen is a judge can come and say, hey, Joe, we can realize that you have this power and authority to change this and alter it. Do it. Give the creditors you know, access to those assets or we're going to hold you in civil contempt of court. That's why you want an asset protection trust to be irrevocable is because you want to be able to hinder a judge's ability to say, hey, go in and change this by force and duress. Once you can't do that, now you have a stronger trust. The strongest version of that is going offshore and having a foreign, you know, the foreign Cook Islands because you have the foreign offshore trustee that can say, hey, no, and we're going to tell you, you can't do it because it's under duress from a court jurisdiction and country we don't recognize their authority to. And this is proved up through the Supreme Court, you know, like U.S. versus Grant and other cases where you, the, they try to force the individuals to allow access to the assets in the trust. And they, literally the court, you know, the prosecutors tried to hold them in civil contempt of court and the judge said, sorry, we can't do it. It's not their fault. They can't give you access to it. So the assets just sat there safe with like the IRS coming after them you know, for like $36 million of like back taxes that they couldn't get access to. And this is the government, the man that can print money and <laughs> resources in the world and they couldn't get access to it. And this is a Supreme Court case. So from a tax standpoint, is there, you know, I'm sure everyone's wondering, you know, when you go offshore or whatever, does it change the taxable advance? Is it tax higher or lower than the typical income is? So when you're creating like, for example, like the British trust, it's a grantor's trust. So no, you know, like you're not even declaring the assets that are in this because it's a grantor's trust. All asset protection needs to be tax neutral for it to actually work. Because if you're trying to create an asset protection plan to hide assets, to not pay taxes, that's tax avoidance. That's illegal. That's fraud. So one, the system will crumble in on itself. It throws up huge red flags. And so there really shouldn't be no direct tax advantage um, to this. But what it does do is it allows us to protect the assets. Then you go to your CPA or wealth managers 
And then they can do all their magic that they can do through different business structures and entities and like forced appreciation. And it's their job then to throttle the advantages of the tax code. So if all the assets are placed in trust, uh, I, I assume that then the person is worth zero, right? I mean, in a sense, their in a, in personal a, balance sense. sheet. Yeah, it depends on how they, you know, how, how they balance out their, you yep. know, accounting and stuff like that. That's more of like, how are, how are they managing their money? But, but yeah, I know like we have some clients who, you know, like trust wise, multi, multi-millionaires yeah. balance sheet wise, they, they put out their IRS, you know, documents on shows they talk on are like, I have made zero. And so no, as, it's exactly right. And so from uh, the trustee role or the, whoever has the ultimate powers, if you're a compliance officer or trustees, uh, typically who plays that role in these trusts? Yeah, it's a great question. And until you have to be for us, like if you're if it's with the bridge trust, until you have to go the nuclear option and drop domestic compliance, it's you because it's a self-settled grantors trust. Grantors trust give you the creator of it, the power to go in and do whatever you want with the trust. Once you drop compliance, you're removed as the first trustee as well as your spouse. And then your second named trustee who would be the offshore trustee in the Cook Islands fills that role. And so then they come in and that's what root, that's what takes out domestic compliance is because you're no longer named as the main trustee. So that's how you, you kill that stone. Like within a day, the trust protectors and your attorneys will say, Hey, we, the attorneys are declaring a state of duress, not you. You're just acknowledging that we're doing it. We're removing you as the initial trustee. You're already pre-named offshore trustee is now filling that void. Their sole job is just to follow directors of the trust. Now, some people, because in the U S we're not used to offshore planning. Um, the rest of the world is, this is just because countries in Europe, they're all connected. So everybody's used to international banking, um, work isolated in a, you know, <laughs> surrounded by water. <laughs> so it's just, it's not, we're not used to, you know, um, finances like this, but then the offshore trustee comes in, follows the directors of the trust. You have a trust protector, generally your attorney or the person who you retain to drop the trust in that role, their sole job is to look over whoever the trustees are and make sure they stay in compliance with the directors of the trust. Then if you were nuclear and had to take the assets into the Cook Islands, then you select your offshore bank account, generally like Switzerland, Uzbekistan, um, Australia, surprisingly, still very, very strong. You're picking those banks on your own. It's your own bank. They have their own internal checks and balances. And so there's no way for a penny to move without the bank giving you acknowledgement and you not just knowing about it, but signing off on it and giving the okay for it. So uh, it's virtually impossible for money to just move without you not just knowing about it, but agreeing to it. But at the same time, you have like a check and balance system with you always knowing what's going on, the offshore trustee having to follow directives of the trust, the um, trust protector looking over everybody and making sure the system itself stays in place. That's interesting. So how does somebody, you know, build trust in those trustees? I feel like that's always the, just some friction point, right? It is because we're not used to it here in the U.S. <laughs> and that's, and, but if you look at really big real estate deals, you know, or like if, you, if you're investing with syndicators and you see where the money is coming from, it's always interesting. It's always being wired in from the Cook Islands or a Swiss account, you know? Um, it's just because that, at that level, you... And it's not even that level. Like once you get about 1 million, 2.5 million, and let's say you're also like a doctor and you have heavy liability in your practice side, you start needing to look at these alternative forms of protection in case a doomsday scenario does come your way. So I would just say it's more of just 
building comfort of doing your research, talking to the firms that you do, like, are you a legitimized firm? Do you have licenses? Because we have to maintain our license and ethical guidelines. Who are the affiliates that you're working with? And so from there, it's just making sure like the whole system and the people you're working with, and you should ask who they are, are actually legitimized. Now, these trustee services, are they typically done from, you know, by a lawyer or a professional service in the Cook Islands? It's from a professional service in the Cook Islands. And there's a bunch of them nowadays. And so I would just try to go and look for one that's been around since probably the start of them, because then they are legitimized. They've been around for a long time. Most scam ones will be up and and gone within like a few amount of months. If they've been around for a decade, a decade or more, they've, they're in my viewpoint, probably a safe bet. So then it's a matter of getting on the phone, talking to them, getting some documents. If you're not going through your firm, if you're going through your lawyer and your law firm that you're working with, like, you know, we are here in the US, we have compliance we have to deal, deal with. You know, like I'm not in the Cook Islands, so like I'm not in or like Belize or somewhere like that. So if the fir- attorney you're talking to is actually have a place of business and is in the U.S., I would be more comfortable saying like, okay, like there's a domesticated aspect of it. I called I called with someone up for something a while ago, and he's like, you know, sitting down in South America. I'm like, well, you know who the fuck's backing me up if, if yeah. we got to go to court? But, you know, oh, that's not me. I'm like, well, then you can't do business, right? Yeah. And so and like, who would be going to court for you at all? It would depend on the state that you're getting sued in. Yeah. At the end of the day, like you would have to have a defense term. But the attorney that doing your asset protection really should be the one because it's not your defense attorney's job to figure out how to negotiate an asset protection plan, you know, and like and, and wheel and deal from there. That's our job. And so if that guy's not going to be the one on the phone call with your defense attorney and saying, okay, hey, like this is how we manage this. Here's when I'll pull the trigger on that. I would think twice. Well, I think the last part of the, tr- the trust is, you know, beneficiaries, correct? And kind of, you know, deciding beneficiaries and what happens. And that's, when yeah, the- and that's you. Self-settled spendthrift trust. Okay. You for you as your own beneficiary. And then typically what happens if, you know, you pass away? Yeah. And eventually when you pass, what you do is you have a, your family estate plan trust, which should have nothing in it. All that should have is your medical directives and your financial directives and your beneficiaries who will be inheriting everything which you and your spouse pass. You just make reference to it in the asset protection plan, like all assets per, you know, the death of, you know, the um, trustees, initial trustees pass per the directives of XYZ estate, family estate plan. Got it. And now you guys typically, is this something you do on an initial consultation with all your clients or what does that process look like to yeah. onboard? Great question. So, you know, we do free consultations and generally it can run from anywhere from 30 minutes to about an hour because it's just a, you know, we have to go through every asset that you have and some people aren't used to disclosing all their assets. And it's like, well, you're calling us to protect your assets. So I kind of have to know what they are, how you own them, where you own them at, the amount of them. And then I have to, you know, your life, what your day job is, where your liability is from your employment, from your activities that you do, how, you know, how old are your kids? Are they driving your car or not? That way we can create a whole holistic plan to protect everything, not just the assets. And that's really what you want is if you think about like a pie chart, you got three categories, the things I know, the things that I don't know, and the things I don't know that I don't know. If you know something, I don't need to really protect you from it. You already know it or ask a question on it. You know it. If I don't know something, you'd be like, hey, Joe, I don't know this. I need the answer to this. Okay, great. Most people own most of their assets and liability comes from the I don't know what I don't know spot. And so we try to shrink that as fast and rapidly as possible and then protect yourself from it. 
Um, and some things you're just never going to know, you know, like gunshots going off in an apartment building or like, you know, giving your keys to your neighbor who has one too many glasses of wine and T-bone somebody. You know, like those are things that are out of your control, but we can, we can protect the collectability from that. So the consultation goes into your whole life and it should, and all the assets, how you own them, and then whatever questions they have. And for us, generally, it's not a one-time consultation because there's a lot of principles that we have to go through with clients and it's the first time they're hearing about them, especially even if they you know, come to me from listening from a show or a summit I talk at or something like that. We just have to walk through the clients, show them the case, show them case law. I'm a big believer of proving things up. And I talk, because as a trial lawyer, I like case law because if I have to go into court, that's what I'm arguing through. And so that would be another thing I would ask whatever lawyer is like, hey, do you have some case law to back up what you're saying? How does, uh, you know, after you go through the plan with potential clients, how do they kind of make the best determination of, you know, the costs and annual reporting and maybe their net worth? And is there any type of gauge to make that decision move forward? Yeah, I think the first deciding factor is they have to decide, do I care more about tax mitigation strategies or asset protection? Because <laughs> I, I get a lot of phone calls of, so asset protection means I'm not going to pay any more in taxes, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, every no one, no one in the U.S. wants to pay taxes. The more they try to raise the tax, the more people, you know, get get upset. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I have to be like, all right, we got to figure out which side of the fence you want to fall on because, like, I we're protecting your assets. Now you can get tax benefits, but then that also comes into our network. Like, okay, go talk to the wealth management guys. Go talk to the CPAs, and let's get more aggressive in your tax mitigation strategy. The protection plan of it is just to protect you because if you lose your, and this is what great CPAs, you know, like if you talk, if you read a lot of, you know, good CPAs books and literature, they'll always say like the first step is protect the assets. Because if you're coming to me to like force, you know, depreciation, you have no assets for me to do my job, then the conversation ends there. <laughs> so whatever you buy, protect it so that then we can do our job after that. And so the first thing when someone calls in, I'd be like, okay, which side of the fence are we going to land on? Do you care more about tax mitigation strategies or do you care more about, I have high liability and I have a lot or I want a lot and I need it protected. Then we can take you to the management, the wealth management guys and let them do their job. So I think that's the first line that someone has to fall on from there. And then the rest of it is the process of just what do you have? What states do you have it in? And where their net worth lies in the sliding scale. Because if you're just starting out, I'm not going to say, hey, here's a bridge trust, a management company, an LLC, give me $30,000. That makes no sense. Like financially, that's just dumb. And so like, I'm not going to charge someone a Taj Mahal, even if you want it until you meet a marker that it justifies it. Because at that, you're just, your money could have been spent getting another asset in there. You know, So it would be like LLC insurance, get a few of those, management company, then we can talk about different types of trust. When it comes to, you know, you said insurance again, different opinions out there, get the maximum, get the minimum. If you get the whole policy base, the person suing knows you have that amount available. Kind of what is the framework someone should go by? I would just say, get as much as you're comfortable with. You know, some people like, and the same thing goes with umbrella policies, because at the end of the day, read your fine print, know what's covered, know what's not, know your claim limit amount. Most people don't know those things. You just have to be able to look at it and say, I understand insurance has its role in its place, but understand the wiggle rooms out of it. And like I said, it's all going to be attacked through fraud um, and intentional wrongdoings and unlawful acts. And insurance will not cover you for incidents that are the direct results of those. And so you got to have it. I would just say, get as much as you're comfortable with 
but realize depending on the amount of injury, a slip and fall, you should be fine. If it's some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you're, they're not, they're going to find their legal wiggle room out really fast. No, I agree. I got a, a personal policy or something a little while ago. And I told them to make sure they send me over the deck information declaration and all that. So I could read through it. And it's like, well, if you basically own the boat, it doesn't cover. If you own this, you, they don't cover you. If you, you know, and it started naming out all the things, basically, if you're in these areas, you, they don't cover you. So it's important to look at those. What do you think, uh, you know, when you're doing that initial client consult too, do you kind of build out a risk profile so that better fits them in one of those buckets or? Yeah, that's what I'm doing as I'm asking them their questions, like where the residency is at, what they do, them and their spouse, if they're married profession wise, as I'm going through a risk profile and I'm kind of just seeing, because there's some people who have their school teachers, you know, no liability from the professional life at all and have, you know, six properties or so. So all the liability only comes from that asset, those assets. But then if you're a medical professional and you're like a cardiovascular surgeon or something like that, and the probability of you getting an overcoverage lawsuit is a lot higher because you have a, not just a high, you know, profile job where you're potentially going to get a couple of malpractice lawsuits, but the probability of an overcoverage lawsuit is now high. Plus those guys are generally investing in real estate and strip malls and like funding massive syndications plus personal real estate. Now they have a huge amount of real estate liability as well. So they have a huge risk profile. So as I'm going through the consultation, these are all the things I'm gauging and asking about what state are you a resident of? You know, are you in Florida or Texas or are you in California where then like if something were to happen to you, now you we really need to worry about your protection because you don't have very many good state laws to protect you in general from there. So we're going through a whole risk profile as I'm asking you, the, you know, all of my questions and see where you fall on the sliding scale. Got it. And do you guys last, I mean, do you guys do anything with uh, personal like life insurance that rolls up into these trusts or? Great question. I don't. I mean, like, yeah, we can put the life insurance and protect it into the management company, which is then owned by the trust. But then I would just refer you off to, you know, like one of someone in our family office. And that's one thing to ask, you know, like if it's an asset protection attorney, it should generally be like their main scope of business. You know, it's just like, if I'm going to have to have surgery, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to have brain surgeon by a general surgeon. No, because I'm probably going to die. And so, so like, make sure you go to the right expert, you know, like a business attorney shouldn't be doing your asset protection plan. Like your real estate attorney focuses on closing, you know, contract attorneys writes contracts, asset protection attorneys, we know risk, liability, taxes, you know, different types of structure business entities to strictly protect you from a doomsday scenario. So go to the right surgeon for the right ailment basically is my whole point on that. I got that. That's good. I appreciate that. Is there anything else you want to leave us on the trust? Not, not on the trust. I would just say, you know, budget and plan as you go and as you scale and just realize where you start is not where you're ending. So if you're starting out new LLC, just scale up as you go. No, I agree. I appreciate the insights. Uh, we always have final question and that is what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life as increase your net worth? Investing in myself in between the years. You know, like you're, you can be as great successful as you want, but if you're all messed up between the years and you can't manage, you know, like your toxicity of your life and dysfunctional toxic and knowing the difference between, you know, people who are there for you and not, then you're going to crumble at some point really bad. And so the more you can invest in yourself and personally have yourself stretch and grow, um, I think that business-wise and personal life-wise, you're going to exponentially grow a hundred times faster. 
Do you think these are all things that we naturally improve upon the most as we age and realize these things? <laughs> no, because then once you get to about like your mid thirties and you've had life kick you down a few times, yeah. you see there, you see two things happen. You crumble and you don't progress and you just live in a safe bubble or you stretch and grow. And then you evolve as a man, as a woman, and you turns you into from like a pawn and jester, like a princess and Jezebel to a king or queen. And so I would just say like, do that transformation faster and realize if you work internally and do maybe some like self growth in between your ears, it'll drastically improve your relationship life with your spouse, your parents, your friends, plus business, how you relate to people. And then that equates to more money and a happier life. I agree. What is, uh, you know, what is the, how would you like people to get a hold of you if they want to? Yeah, you can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. I have tons of information on there and videos to watch. And I have it more as like a legal reference spot with a lot of case law also, just so people can get an idea of, okay, I'm looking for this. I want a resource. There's not very many resource pages out here. Like here's some case law. Here's this. It gets you thinking, good questions to ask. So you are knowledgeable enough to know when you're being sold a bag of BS. Or you can just, you know, shoot me an email, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btvlegal.com. And I'm always willing to answer people's questions, whether, you know, you sign up with me or not, or even if you can't afford what we do, you may not, but at least get you some education and point in the right direction. Well, Brian, I appreciate coming out today and for your time. Yeah, no problem, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Robert Show.